Hello, I'm Michael Brodeur, and welcome to Leaders Alliance. We are a global community of kingdom-minded leaders who are passionate about helping you become the world-changing leader that God created you to be. Join the conversation. Hi, welcome to the Leaders Alliance podcast. I'm Elijah Stevens. I'll be substitute hosting for Michael Brodeur today. Um, I'm one of the thought leaders uh, in, inside of Leaders Alliance, and today we are blessed to have Sam Storms on the podcast. Sam is a, uh, he's certainly a thought leader inside of charismaticism. Um, he uh, used to work for Mike Bickle. He helped start the uh, prayer house. Um, he has also been the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. We'll get a little bit more into his story, but he just carries this word and spirit passion um, that he's reawakening in people all around the world right now. And so we want to welcome you to the podcast today, Sam. Hey, it's good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. Well, I wanted to go back and hear your journey of how you became a Christian and then how you transitioned from a cessationist into a, a, a charismatic continuationist. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Shawnee, Oklahoma, which is about okay. uh, 40 minutes southeast of where you and I are right now, Elijah. Um, raised a Southern Baptist, never attended any church other than a Southern Baptist church until, uh, I guess, until I got to theological seminary. Um, Southern Baptists were not then known and still aren't for belief in or the practice of the uh, revelatory gifts of the Spirit. So I was pretty much nurtured and raised um, in that Southern Baptist culture. I went to the University of Oklahoma. Um, Met my wife there. We got married after our junior year. From there, went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, <clears throat> Dallas, as most people know, is confessionally cessationist. So my opposition to the work of the Spirit through, through the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, was kind of reinforced while I was at Dallas. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I think my first exposure to the things of the spirit and the, the first thing that got me really thinking about it actually happened before I went seminary in October of 1970. I was in my uh, second year at the University of Oklahoma. I just returned from a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ. Now you got to remember the time frame. Summer of 1970 was when the Jesus movement broke out. Okay. Yeah, that was when... Uh, uh, that's when Hal Lindsey published his book, Late Great Planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And I was in the heart of that in, in um, Lake Tahoe. And we would often go over to, to Berkeley and to uh, places in Southern California. And at the end of the summer, we were invited. It's actually the last week of the project. I was invited to a Bible study. And there was a man there by the name of Harold Bredesen. Now, few people will know the name of Harold Bredesen. He's now with the Lord. He was a Lutheran charismatic who was in many ways more responsible for the spread and the influence of the charismatic 
experience into mainline denominations than any other individual. Huh. And he taught a Bible study and <laughs> it was on the subject of speaking in tongues, which wasn't setting well with this Southern Baptist cessationist. And at the end of it, uh, I went up to talk with him. He prayed for me, gave me a book to read. It was that book by John Sherrill called They Speak With Other Tongues. Mm -hmm. And I went back to the University of Oklahoma and became really obsessed with this issue. And I thought, if this is really from God, I want it. And about two months into my uh, sophomore year, God powerfully imparted the gift of tongues to me. It was a life-changing, incredibly um, paradigm-shifting experience. Well, but, let's back up. How yeah. did he impart it? Were you just standing along? Did someone no. pray for you? Yeah, I'd be happy to tell you. Um, every night at 10 o'clock, seven mm -hmm. nights a week, I would leave my fraternity house and walk two blocks to the McKinley Elementary School parking lot and sit under the same tree and pray. And mm -hmm. I would I, it was the same prayer every time. Lord, I, I want all that you have for me. I don't know even if I believe this is real, but if it is, I want to be able to commune with you and speak to you in a, a deeper, more intimate way. I didn't try to speak in tongues. I didn't, you know, say banana backwards over and over again, trying yeah. to prime the pump. Um, I And I was just sitting there quietly. And it, the only language I know to give it is I was invaded. Oh, wow. There was this invasion of the Holy Spirit. It came upon me. And I found myself speaking in this language that I couldn't understand. It was the most single most exhilarating experience I've ever had in my 71 years on this earth. It was as if the veil between heaven and earth was pulled back and I entered into this new realm. And the amazing thing about it was while I'm sitting there speaking in tongues, I'm dialoguing in my mind. I'm saying, Sam, what's happening? Are you talking in tongues? What's going on right now? This is incredible. All the while my mouth is just oh, going wow. feet ahead. So after about a couple of minutes, I stopped and it was a, an act of will on my part. Now, it's interesting. I've, I have tried to assess what that was over the years, because I do believe that spirit baptism happens with for all Christians at the moment of conversion. Some people have tried to tell me I was baptized in the spirit at that moment with the sign of speaking in tongues. I tend to think it was more along the lines of a spirit filling but I really don't care. Mm -hmm. The only thing that mattered to me was, was the experience real? Was it truly from God? And it was. So I will never debate anybody, whether you want to call it baptism of the spirit or filling with the spirit, doesn't matter to me. It was real. Now, the sad thing about it is I went back to my fraternity house and um, I uh, I called the leader of Campus Crusade, who was my mentor at the time. He came over. This is a true story. I sat down in his car and I said, you'll never guess what happened tonight. And he looked at me and said, you spoke in tongues, didn't you? How did you know that? He said, I just had a sense. And then he told me, he said, you can't do that anymore. If you want to be involved in crusade, you can never do that. You can't tell oh, anybody wow. what happened. Because at that time, crusade was very anti-charismatic. I know they're much more open now, but mm -hmm. 1970, it was not a popular topic. So I quite literally shut down the experience for 20 years. And it was almost exactly 20 years later at an evangelical theological society meeting in New Orleans that I hooked up once again with Jack Deere, 
who was a classmate of mine at Dallas, a professor at Dallas. He prayed for me, laid hands on me. God renewed the gift in my life. So it was about that time, about 88, 89, 90, that I began to research the scriptures. Um, I hadn't really seen any miracles. It wasn't because I'd prayed for anybody and they were healed. I hadn't mm -hmm. prophesied. I just looked at the word of God and it became clear to me all of my arguments against the gifts of the spirit today were invalid. And I mm -hmm. said, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. This is going to radically change my church, my life, the trajectory of my ministry, which it did. But I embraced the gifts of the spirit. Jack connected me with Mike Bickle in Kansas City. I eventually moved there in 1993 and um, uh, worked with Mike for seven years, helped launch the House of, International House of Prayer. When Mike stepped down from the church to go full-time with IHOP, um, I decided it was time for me to leave. That's when I went to Wheaton College. I taught theology there for four years and eventually made my way back to Oklahoma and in, in 2008 came to Bridgeway Church, from which I have just recently stepped down as lead pastor. And uh, Michael Roundtree, one of the co-hosts of Remnant Radio, is now the lead pastor. Um, and um, I'm just working with Enjoying God Ministries, doing things like this. Uh, mm -hmm. writing books, traveling, doing a podcast. So, yeah, my my entrance into the gifts of the Spirit, <laughs> although some people would want to say it was because of what happened in 1970, I really don't think it was because for the 20 years that passed before that gift was renewed, I convinced myself it wasn't real because mm -hmm. I had friends telling me who knew about it, oh, you just psychologically you know, entered into an altered state of consciousness, or maybe it was a demon. And uh, I was in a context and a culture in Dallas where anybody who spoke in tongues was written off as a kook. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just kind of suppressed the possibility that it was real deep down in my soul. I knew it was, I was just afraid to acknowledge it, but I really came into the gifts of the spirit by looking at the Bible. I just started reading scripture I reevaluated the arguments my seminary professors had given me, and I just found that they didn't hold water. Mm -hmm. they, just, they, they just didn't hold up to Scripture. Uh, Jack was very instrumental in helping me with that. D.A. Carson, his book, Showing the Spirit, was very helpful. I was reading books by Jack Hayford um, and others like that, and uh, eventually just from looking at the Word of God, I said, there's, there's not a syllable in scripture that teaches me the gifts of the spirit were temporary and designed for only the first, what, 40 or 50 years of the church's life. Hmm. So you have these experiences and then you go, all right, I'm convinced. Find yourself a pastor and you're leading a church. Um, what's that like? And what, what are you learning as you try to be both word and spirit? Yeah, it, it was an interesting, um, I was pastoring a church of about 200 people. The previous pastor had been a disciple of John MacArthur and had actually been on his okay. staff for a while. So it was a hardcore cessationist church. Um, and I really, I think the Lord just gave me some extraordinary wisdom. I, th I don't think I was mature enough to know how to do it myself. Mm -hmm. But I turned that church very, very slowly. Right. Over the course of about five years. Um, I was careful to teach on things before I ever put them into practice. Uh, I was very open and forthright with people saying, look, my theology has changed. 
Um, and I know some of you are scared. Some of you are worried. What does this mean for us? I said, trust me, I will never say anything, do anything, or ask you to say or do anything that we can't justify from the word of God. So over the course of the next five years, this is from 88 to 93, we just really turned that ship of state very slowly. I think over the five-year period, we may have lost half a dozen people. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was in 93 that Mike Bickle invited me to Kansas City. And of course, <laughs> the home of the Kansas City prophets, that's jumping into the deep end of the pool without a life preserver. And it right. was great. I loved it. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was wonderful. Um, learned a lot. And uh, Mike is still one of my dearest friends to this day. Mm. What was that like uh, living through the Kansas City prophets? It was. <sighs> I'm laughing because, uh, you know, you could use the word famous or infamous. Right. We probably the most famous and infamous church in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it, it was a combination of incredible supernatural phenomena, mm -hmm. the likes of which I had never experienced before. It was very real, angelic encounters, healings, prophetic revelation. Um, you know, this was during the time of the Toronto blessing. So we were swept up in that reality as well very much involved with the vineyard. John Wimber became a close friend. Um, the church was slightly dysfunctional in some respects because, because of the reputation, we drew a lot of people from around the country and the world who moved to Kansas City just to be in Mike Bickle's church. And there was a lot of brokenness and people coming with high expectations that we just simply couldn't meet. But at the same time, I wouldn't give up those seven years for anything in the world. I mean, Ann and I have often talked about the fact that people, it sounds strange to people. There was such a heightened sense of expectancy that we came to church every Sunday, fully expecting Jesus to come back then. I mean, it mm -hmm. was that kind of, of intimacy, joy, power. Um, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, we, we had our ups and downs. We had our problems here and there. But um, it was it was an incredible experience. The people I met, the opportunities that I had. Um, uh, we traveled um, all over the country and the world with Mike and other of the prophetic leaders. Learned a lot. Learned a lot from our mistakes as well as the things we did well. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But in um, the late 90s, Mike began to sense from God that transition was in place and he wasn't supposed to be a local church pastor. He was supposed to be an intercessor and revivalist. So that's when we launched the House of Prayer. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of off the ground about a month or two after we launched it. Um, I was uh, issued an opportunity to go to Wheaton College and teach theology there. And that's when I left and went there. We moved back to Kansas City four years later. And I wasn't on staff with Mike, but I was very much involved in the House of Prayer for the next four years until I came to Oklahoma City. Well, you said I learned a lot. And I think, you know, there's a lot of leaders out there listening to that. And they go, I've never been through revival. I've never been at the most infamous, famous church. Um, and the learning curve has to be steep. And so are there some things you're like, I, I would tell you this if you're going through that process. like you. Yeah, by the way, I, I'm just thinking here. 
famous and infamous, there is a sense in which we were the Bethel of the 1990s. Sure. Um, it has that reputation now. We had that reputation then. I think one of the most important things that I learned was the way in which the Spirit of God moves. Okay. Because we had to be extraordinarily discerning with God's help in terms of um, is this the work of the Spirit or is this the flesh or is this some sort of psychological aberration or is this d demonic? Um, there's so many differing um, uh, explanations. And we had people who were experiencing profound encounters, manifestations that were quite controversial, other people who didn't feel anything at all. Then, of course, you bring in these various ministry styles, things that would be said or done that would facilitate certain expressions. And so we spent many, 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 many hundreds of hours talking with people saying, tell us what you were experiencing. Tell us what you were going through. Um, and it took me back, obviously, to Jonathan Edwards in the First Great Awakening. Okay. Because Edwards in the First Great Awakening experienced very much the same sorts of manifestations. Mm -hmm. And people were asking, is, is this the Holy Spirit? And Edwards would say, might be, might not be. How do you discern? And of course, Edwards put together those criteria by which he said, well, it's not so much whether or not you fall down. <clears throat> it's whether you're a better Christian once you stand up again. Do you love Jesus more? Do you love his word more? Do you love your family more? Are you? Do you love the lost more? Um, do you love the Bible more? And so it was an issue of what is the long lasting fruit of mm -hmm. any particular encounter with the spirit. So we were walking through that every single day, and it was it was a real learning process. Um, I hope to write a book on revival sometime within the next year or so, and I want to compare what happened in the first great awakening with what was happening in the '90s in Kansas mm -hmm. City and around the world. Oh, that sounds interesting. And uh, and and just say how how do because people ask this all the time. How do I know if this is the spirit of God? Mm -hmm. And sometimes there aren't explicit biblical criteria that answer that question. Sometimes it takes wisdom and discernment and it takes where you have to just kind of wait and see the fruit or the lack of it in a person's life. So those are the sorts of lessons that I learned there. I think, I think the other thing I learned, Elijah, and I want to, I really want to emphasize this, um, I was raised in a theological world prior to the time I went to Kansas City in which you judged people on the basis solely of their theology. Mm -hmm. If they embraced the correct doctrine, mm -hmm. they're, they're on board with you. They're good. Accept them. Uh, if they don't, don't, don't even give them the time of day. And during my time in Kansas City, I encountered people of a variety of theological perspectives. So, for example, I'm very reformed in my soteriology. I'm, I'm a Calvinist. Most of the people in the Kansas City were not. Um, I hold to a particular eschatology. It was different from most of what was held by the staff in Kansas City. We had differences on ecclesiology. We had different opinions on a variety of issues. And what I discovered much to my, in a sense, my shame that I had to repent for 
was that these people who differed with me on secondary issues oftentimes loved Jesus more than I did. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes shared their faith with the lost more fervently than I did. Oftentimes were more devoted to prayer and Bible study and loving others than I was. And it opened my eyes to the diversity in the body of Christ. Now, again, I'm not diminishing the importance of accurate theology. You know me well enough to realize I highly emphasize we want to be as as biblical as we can in our beliefs. But I also realized that just because somebody differs with me on some issue doesn't mean that they're not born again. Doesn't right. mean that I can't learn from them. Doesn't mean that that they might well be more mature and more godly than I am. And I, I think sometimes in this this hyper discerning world with the internet and all the bloggers, if you differ with somebody on even the slightest matter, you're dismissed as a heretic. And I just learned. Uh, I hope to be able to. And again, I didn't throw discernment away, but I learned how to embrace believers from a variety of different perspectives. Uh, I'll give you just one example. One of my dearest friends now, we've grown to really love and respect each other, is Craig Keener. Mm -hmm. Well, Craig is an Armenian and an egalitarian and a premillennialist. I am a Calvinistic complementarian amillennialist. But those differences in no way hinder our relationship with each other. We have worked on projects together. I'm actually writing a commentary right now for a series that Craig is uh, the general editor of. <clears throat> so I think that was, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's one of the most important lessons I learned mm -hmm. was the diversity in the body of Christ on secondary and tertiary issues. Now, first order fundamental doctrines, that's a different matter. Sure. I don't fellowship with or minister alongside those who deny the resurrection of Jesus or mm -hmm. those who deny that salvation is by anything other than grace through faith mm -hmm. uh, or people who don't believe in the second coming. I mean, there are foundational doctrines we have mm -hmm. to stand on. But aside from those, I wish that Christians would be less, less um, critical, less cynical and mm -hmm. more willing to recognize that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to spend eternity with them. We learn need to learn how to honor one another, get along, and collaborate in the work of the kingdom. Right. And so this is a question. Well, there's one thing I want to bring up. So if you guys are listening, um, I highly recommend reading the work by Jonathan Edwards. I think it's called Distinguishing Marks of a Work of God. It's 20 pages. It's super simple um, on on discerning. I think Paul King wrote a good book, uh, Is It of God, that uses that as a rubric. Um, he's, it's a two-part series. So if you're going, how do I discern things? It, you know, you have to learn that to be in this space. Right. Um, but this is my question. So they tell you to ask this of business leaders is everybody knows what made them succeed. Is there a point where you go, I made a major mistake in discerning something um, so that our audience can learn, hey, let me never make that mistake. I'm just throwing it out. You may not have one. Yeah, I think, I think perhaps the biggest one, uh, unfortunately, I made this mistake for the first 20 years of public ministry. I 
I hope and pray I haven't made it since. And that is the idea that abuse justifies disuse. And mm-hmm. I've come to realize that just because somebody does something poorly doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it at all. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like I almost it's almost the 11th commandment of Bible church evangelicalism. Thou mm-hmm. shalt not do at all what others do poorly. Right. Here's the bottom line. Everybody does something poorly. But instead of just ruling, therefore, ruling that out and maybe even writing into the bylaws of the church. Well, we've seen somebody do this really badly. We're never going to do it at all in our church. That's a colossal mistake. That's unwise. It's not biblical. So I think it's learning how to honestly and objectively evaluate practices, ministry styles from a biblical point of view, weeding out the error, embracing the Mm -hmm. truth, but at the same time saying, just because somebody was an embarrassment, just because somebody was manipulative, doesn't mean I'm going to reject altogether the kind of ministry or the theological beliefs that were behind that particular practice. So again, it's a matter of being patient and discerning as best we are. Um, I think that's one of the most important lessons that I've learned over the years. What would you say has been the number one thing that you've learned about how to follow the spirit while being word-based over the years? Um, I think probably the most important thing is reading the text of scripture with a conscious, prayerful intent of the spirit of God illumining, breaking through, quickening my heart and my mind so that I'm not just learning for information, but I'm learning for transformation Mm -hmm. and being open to hearing the voice of the spirit of God, as well as the voice of the written text. Because after Mm -hmm. all, it's the written text that tells me that the Spirit of God still speaks. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the most important thing. Not being afraid of experience. um, Not being gullible to imbibe and just swallow anything that comes down the pike. But not being fearful or cynical of it. um, And also being careful to to monitor my own heart. Mm -hmm. Do I find that my theological knowledge and the depth into which I go as I study Scripture... Am I allowing that to create a spirit of cynicism and judgment toward others who may not know the text as well as I do? Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that I think are most important in the process. Um, a lot of people's, especially in the charismatic movement, experience of the reformed is they are the ones trying to shut the gifts off. Uh, there's a huge segment that is we'll call them hypercritics. Um, How do you navigate that space of I'm reformed and I am just pro-continuationist? And what would you say to that community that is hypercritical? All right, here's my my five cent answer and then I'll expand upon it. When people say, how can you be reformed and charismatic? And I say the same way the apostle Paul was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's, it sounds funny. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it seriously. The man who wrote the book of Romans also said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Mm-hmm. So 
Paul, Peter, John, they were all reformed. In my opinion, they were all functional charismatics as well. Now, getting back to kind of the question, uh, kind of getting underneath the surface, I think there is a, perhaps the single most, uh, well, that's not true. Let me, let me say a couple of things instead of reducing it to one. I think there are two things that people in the reformed community who are very word-based fear more than anything. And number one is the guilt by association. They see something being done poorly. They see a very public, prominent platform TV evangelist doing things that are offensive, hurtful, fabricated, and they just want to distance themselves from it. But then secondly, perhaps the most fundamental underlying assumption among most in the Reformed world is that to believe in the revelatory gifts of the Spirit means you don't believe in the finality and sufficiency of the Bible. Let me give you an illustration of this from personal experience. Uh, about eight years ago, um, I attend the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society every year. It's always in November, the week before Thanksgiving. We were in San Diego, <clears throat> and my friend Wayne Grudem had come to me and said, Sam, would you be willing, <clears throat> excuse me, clearing my throat here, he said, would you be willing to have your name put in nomination for the executive committee of ETS? And an ETS, for those who don't know, Evangelical Theological Society is a society of about 4,500 scholars from all around the country and the world. Um, and uh, they have their own journal. They have their own annual meeting. It's a very prominent, influential group. And he said, if you get nominated, you be immediately become the vice president. Then you become president-elect. Then you become president. And then you serve an additional four years on the executive committee. So you're a part of a group of seven men who serve to lead the ETS. So Wayne twisted my arm. I said, okay. So my name was, he nominated me at the annual business meeting. And an individual, I won't mention his name, he's a very godly man, protested my nomination. And he said, Sam believes in revelatory gifts of the spirit. But to be a member of ETS, you have to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. And those two are incompatible. They're mutually mm -hmm. exclusive. I thought, what? Mm -hmm. And actually, I was then asked to stand up in front of the entire society at the business meeting and explain how I could affirm biblical inerrancy, the finality of the canon of Scripture and its absolute authority on the one hand, and still believe in the revelatory gifts of the Spirit on the other. Because they, a lot of those guys thought those were mutually exclusive, mm -hmm. and therefore I couldn't serve on the executive committee. Um, so I had about 15 minutes. I made the defense, passed with flying colors. I think of the of all the vote that was taken, there was only one no vote, and it wasn't the guy who initially protested. It was another man. But what it revealed was that there is this suspicion on the part of many in the evangelical mm -hmm. world that to believe the Spirit of God still speaks through revelatory gifts is a threat to the finality and the sufficiency of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And my response to that is, it's precisely because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture that I embrace the revelatory gifts of the Spirit. And here's why. The sufficiency of Scripture means that you believe the Bible gives us every truth that we need 
and every prohibition that we need to observe in order to live a godly life, a Christ-exalting life. So then ask the question, what does the Bible say about spiritual gifts? Does it say anything other than positive things about them? No. It says earnestly desire them, especially prophecy. <clears throat> so my point is, it's the all-sufficient scriptures that, are, that tell me that I am to pursue spiritual gifts and not forbid speaking in tongues. Sufficiency of scripture means that if there's some danger, if there's some threat, we trust that the Bible will alert us to it. So I ask my cessationist friends, give me one verse of scripture anywhere that tells us that spiritual gifts are a danger or a threat. In fact, everything the Bible says about them is that they are given by God's grace to build up the body of Christ. So I don't know how you can believe in the sufficiency of scripture and not embrace the full range of the Spirit's gifts. So that is really the, I think, the underlying cause of the divide between kind of the Reformed Evangelical Bible Church world on the one hand and the charismatic continuationist world on the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just I just don't see the legitimacy of their arguments. It just It's mm -hmm. just not in the Word of God. Um, there is a group of people... I think who they think Jesus resurrected from the dead. The gospels are generally history, but they are very hesitant to say scripture is inerrant, especially in this post-truth, post-modern age. They're afraid of archaeology, undermining stuff like the Exodus or stuff of that nature. And it's easy as a charismatic pastor to just sit back and go, all right, we'll just do power encounter stuff to convince them that God is real, but not really press into this area of inerrancy. Sure. Um, what, what are your thoughts about how do you take people who are in that space and expand their confidence in the word of God? Well, I'm just I'm looking over here. I'm going to pull a book off my shelf. This is just one of many. Okay. It's written by William Mounts, who's a very good friend of mine. I see him at ETS every year. It's entitled, Why Should I Trust the Bible? And the word should is marked out, and it's why I trust the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, 270 pages addressing the very questions you're asking. Are mm -hmm. there legitimate substantive objections to the idea that the Bible was given to us without error in the original manuscripts. And it is an absolutely incredible book has a <clears throat> long chapter on supposed contradictions in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So there are multiplicity of resources like this. And I just tell Christians, folks, you do not have to be afraid of the Bible. You don't have to fear that it's not going to stand up to scrutiny. You don't have to live, uh, anxious that somehow some objection is going to be thrown up that for which there's not a good cogent answer. Mm -hmm. So many books have been written. Um, you know, there's another one on my shelf written by uh, Craig Blomberg. I'm looking at it called, can we still believe in the Bible? Mm -hmm. There's so many of these and, and all of the objections are answered. I think, I think one of the reasons why um, some Christians are afraid is because uh, one, they haven't studied the issue very well. And two, they don't understand what inerrancy means. Um, and 
they, they need to understand what it does mean and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Bible speaks authoritatively on every conceivable subject. It means that those subjects on which it does speak, it speaks without error. Mm -hmm. Properly interpreted according to the author's intent, it is consistent with objective truth. Um, so again, I don't want Christians to, to be afraid of the Bible, to be afraid of the arguments of the unbeliever or the skeptic. It's interesting. Um, I don't, you know, you hear this many times. I've heard it re recently. There has not been a single archaeological discovery that conflicts with anything in Scripture. It only serves to confirm them. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, some people think that science somehow is in conflict with Scripture and undermines inerrancy. But the, again, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. Uh, <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me, where the Bible does speak on matters of science, and it does so very rarely, it can be trusted. But again, the Bible is not a book on geography, architecture, biology, botany, um, uh, a cosmology. It's primarily a revelation of the heart of God for his people and what it tells us about God and the way in which we can be reconciled mm -hmm. to him is entirely without error. So I actually have a, a, a chapter in my book, Tough Topics, called Is the Bible Inerrant? And I go through in that chapter what does inerrancy mean? What does it not mean? So, mm -hmm. for example, I just give a quick illustration. The Bible many times will round off numbers. Um, so, for example, if Elijah, you said to me, hey, Sam, uh, how far is your home from our church office? And I said, oh, 10 miles. And then you get in your car and you track it on your odometer and you find out it's 9.3 miles. You're going to point a finger at me and say, you lied to me. You were in error. Mm -hmm. We all use generalized, rounded off numbers. The Bible does this all the time. And it's not an error when it does so with less than arithmetical precision. So, you know, we live in a computerized, highly technological world in which precision like that is expected. That's not the world in which the Bible was written. Mm -hmm. So, again, I, I'd recommend Mounce's book, Blomberg's book, so many others that are very helpful um, in, in addressing the issue of the inerrancy of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture. Guests on the show are asking, can you explain the difference between infallibility and inerrancy? I personally don't recognize the difference. Now, there okay. are some who do. In fact, in the UK, for example, over in England and in cer certain European countries, they prefer the word infallibility, okay. meaning that the Bible is not fallible. It has no errors in it. They don't like the word inerrancy because it feels a little bit too scientifically precise. And the word inerrancy has been associated with so many ugly debates in American evangelicalism, the modernist mm -hmm. fundamentalist controversy of the earlier part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um um, you know, Harold Lenzel's book that came out in the early 1970s called The Battle for the Bible. And there was there was this, you know, did Peter deny Jesus three times or six times and the attempt to reconcile these things in the Gospels. And so the word inerrant for many people um, was not helpful. They thought they could secure the same emphasis, namely on the entire truthfulness of the Bible with the word infallible. And they could avoid the controversies that are oftentimes associated with inerrancy. 
<clears throat> J.I. Packer, who went to be with the Lord, what, uh, two, three years ago, just two years ago, I think in 2020, um, Packer from the UK did most of his teaching in latter years in Canada, talked about this extensively, and he ended up uh, saying we need the word inerrancy. He ended up saying it, it's still helpful, but I think sometimes people want to embrace infallibility without the word inerrant because they want to say it allows us to believe the Bible's true, but we don't have to say that the Bible addresses specific issues for which it wasn't designed, like issues of botany or architecture or biology. So that's that's kind of the distinction. I like both words. I don't mm -hmm. object to either one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think the point is, read the Bible like you're listening to God at some level, and he's speaking to you through his word, and let that be authoritative in your life. And see it as a book that can, contains moral, theological, historical knowledge. Um, and I think sometimes our culture, especially even Christian culture today, we have a hard time embracing the Bible as containing knowledge. Um, and we need to, as ministers, not just focus on, well, we're having subjective experiences of the Spirit, but we also have... Um, objective knowledge from God that was written through his spirit. Um, and so that is super helpful because if you don't use the Bible as a grid for what's permissible or not permissible, you end up in a type of relativism. And I think that's part of the reason God gave us his word is so that we um can know things about him and what is right and wrong and how to live. Yeah. And you just talk about it imparts knowledge. I say, yes, just one example would be the um, ancient history that we find in the old Testament sure. the books of Samuel Kings Chronicles and so on over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, discoveries come along in which the facts presented there are confirmed as true. You know, I remember, I, you know, I, I've heard people push back and say, yeah, but uh, you can't trust the uh, genealogies. The chronology doesn't work. Well, they need to realize that it was common practice back then to skip multiple generations. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, you know, for example, this person begat this person begat that person. And sometimes they would skip generations. But that was common practice back then. That didn't undermine the truthfulness of God's word. But we can learn about ancient history. We can learn about the Exodus from Egypt and know that we have reliable information from the word of God, which, as I said, repeatedly is confirmed by more recent archaeological discoveries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And <clears throat> this is really helpful. Um, and so as... Christians going, we want to be word and spirit. How do we put that into practice in our lives? You know, if you're talking to a lay person out there and they say, I want to be a word and spirit person saying, how do I do this? First thing I tell them up front is count the cost. Okay. It is pricey. And I don't mean that financially necessarily. Um, it's hard because most churches today, I, I, I could look at the hundreds of churches in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and I could tell you almost by their name and their denomination where they land. They're mm -hmm. word oriented, they're gonna be against the gifts of the spirit. 
they're charismatically oriented. They're going to be a church with great power and ministering in the, in the gifts of the spirit and maybe a little soft on the word. It is easy to identify those churches verbally. They'll say we embrace both, but in terms of ministry style, worship, how, or even whether they pray uh, will indicate where they land. And I just think the place that people have to begin is you have to ask yourself this question. Be honest with your own soul. Do I believe that scripture demands both? Mm -hmm. I came to the point where I said, yes, I cannot escape it. You know, Jesus is described as a man who was great in both word and deed. Some churches are really great in word and they're really pathetic with deed. Others are great in deeds and they're soft on the word. Are we willing to embrace both? It's it's this issue of intellect and affection. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christians are more comfortable with just, you know, living in the world of their intellect and they're terrified of their affections. Others, boy, ignite my affections, make me feel good, but don't bother me with deep doctrine. And you have to come to a point where you say, I'm not willing to make this either or because God does not make it either or. Mm. There are both, there's both head and heart. There's both mind and spirit. There's both intellect and affections. There's both truth and power. And I don't see how Christians can grow. I don't see how churches can thrive if they don't embrace both. So that's where you have to start. Now, how you move from that point on, um, if I can shamelessly promote one book that I wrote, for over the course of several years, I was getting dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of emails and letters and phone calls from pastors who would say, Sam, I'm on board with you theologically. I, I recognize this is what the word of God teaches, but I don't know how to do it. And I'm afraid if I try, I'm going to blow up my church. I want to drive people away and it's going to be the end of my ministry. What do I do? Well, I finally got tired of writing the same email over and over again. (laughs) I turned it into a book called Practicing the Power that Zondervan published. came out in 2017. And in Practicing the Power, I initially wrote it largely for church leaders and pastors, but it's really designed for all Christians. And it's basically describing my own journey into Word and Spirit. And also, here are some practical steps like creating a prayer ministry, like training in prophetic ministry. Like, how do you approach worship? Like, what do you do about demonic activity? How do you avoid manipulation? And all of this was designed to give people an idea how they can move into the convergence of word and spirit uh, without destroying their church or dividing people over the issue. Mm -hmm. Sam, would you be willing to pray for us um, or impart to us whatever you can um, right now about becoming word and spirit uh just lead us in a prayer time if you will absolutely would love to do that well gracious father um elijah and i are not aware of who's listening to this or who will watch it in the future but you are you know every soul every situation you know the circumstances that uh, individual christians and church leaders and elders and pastors uh, are facing on a daily basis and Lord I'm asking that you would according to your sovereign good pleasure impart to them as Paul prays in Ephesians 1 a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are 
the knowledge of the hope of their calling and that they would find themselves desperate for more of the Spirit of God, hungry for the power of the third person of the Godhead. At the same time, they keep their finger on the text of Scripture, never deviating from anything that you have revealed in your word, knowing, knowing deep in their souls that these two are perfectly compatible and that they can never thrive in the way you want them to without both. So Father, I ask that you would give them courage, that you would impart a boldness and a commitment that nothing, that they will let nothing stand in their way. They will let no threat, no departure of church members hinder them from pressing through that they'll be willing to endure criticism and ridicule because they know that they are following in obedience what you have called upon us to do in your word. So Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you would do in their lives what Paul said at the end of Romans 15, how he ministered in the power of signs and wonders in word and deed, both. We cannot do ministry without both. So Lord, I pray that you would give them a deep conviction in their hearts of this. Spirit of God, would you open their eyes to it if they're still skeptical or hesitant and enable them to embrace it and to begin to walk this out in accordance with your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus and ultimately for his glory because we want to see his name exalted in word and spirit churches. We ask it for the praise of our great God. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Um, and if you want to get in touch with Sam, go to samstorms.org. You can listen to his uh, podcast. Is it Experiencing the Word and Spirit podcast? Exploring Word and Spirit. Exploring. Um, it's a great one. I highly recommend the one on Christian mysticism. I thought that was phenomenal. Um, and thank you so much and come back next week. Leaders Alliance, um, with, uh, Michael Burdor. It, it will be excellent. See you then.